everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a interview for you today. Uh, part one, as I usually do. Uh, we usually talk for about an hour, so I usually like to split those up, so it's not quite so long. So uh, this week will be part one of my interview with Marshall Irwin, who is the Chief Security Officer at Mozilla. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Mozilla is the company behind the Firefox browser. You know, the one that I always recommend that people use. And this is one of the interviews I've been teasing in the past weeks. I've been, gosh, I've been wanting to get somebody on from Mozilla for so, so long. Because, I mean, I've been recommending Firefox basically since day one, which for me was, you know, with the first edition of the book, which I self-published in uh, January of 2015. So in all that time, it, it's, it's only gotten better. And they keep adding more and more privacy features uh, left and right. So it's really awesome. And it, it, I've been dying to get somebody on here from Mozilla. And uh, today, finally, that all comes to fruition. Marshall has a very interesting background, and it turns out that we both kind of got into privacy for similar reasons. And so today I'm going to ask him a little bit about what, you know, what he feels privacy means, what are, what are the basic principles and tenets that we should be uh, cleaving to, and whether, honestly, whether privacy is even possible today. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how we got here. We'll talk a little bit about government surveillance, uh, mass surveillance, as well as, obviously, corporate surveillance. And then, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of the ways in which they track us around the web and what Firefox in particular is doing to thwart those techniques. Before we get into it, we do throw a couple terms around that I wanted to, you know, we've talked about them before, but I, you know, I just want to make sure that we cover this territory just in case, because you're going to hear these terms thrown around and we didn't really define them, but I'll uh, just real quickly. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about cookies because that's the way we're tracked. And we're going to talk in particular about third party cookies. So, What's a third party versus a first party? Well, um, again, first party, if I, if I go to yahoo.com, then any ads or images or web content served up by yahoo.com would be the first party. But as I've often told you, web pages today are really patchwork quilts of all sorts of content coming from all sorts of different places. Any one web page can literally have hundreds of sources. And for any of those sources that are not yahoo.com, when I go to yahoo.com, uh, those would be considered third party. And so a cookie is a little bit of data that the website you're pulling information from, uh, one of the patches on that patchwork quilt, uh, they can drop a little bit of data on your computer. For first parties, we use it all the time for things like remembering that I'm logged in, remembering who I am, remembering what's in my shopping cart sometimes. Uh, those kind of things are you know, first party cookies. They're very useful and honestly necessary for a lot of websites to even work. Third-party ones, however, are almost always for tracking, almost always not for your benefit. So anyway, that's that's kind of the high level of what a cookie is and what it means to be a third-party cookie. Uh, one other term we throw around a little bit is hashing, and that is a uh, cryptographic term. And we've talked about it before. Basically, a hash kind of takes some unlimited amount of data and processes it, munges it, and spits out a big, big number of a certain size. And that becomes handy when you want to see if uh, it's kind of like taking a fingerprint or maybe an x-ray uh, of something uh, like a, a piece of software or a document or some, some other digital item. And if you take a hash of that item uh, and you send it to somebody and they take a hash of that exact same item, you will both get the same hash, the same value, the same number, uh, the same kind of x-ray of that, of that thing. However, if, if that is changed at all, if one bit, one digital bit of that, digital item is changed, the hash will be totally different. And so that's kind of the concept of hashing. Uh, I wanted to at least give you a, a brief definition of what that is before we start throwing around with that definition. 
All right, just one more thing. I, I'm, I'm firming up the plans for the, the big book giveaway because the book is going to be published very soon. So stay tuned uh, after the first part of this interview, and I'll give you some more details. But now let's go to part one of my interview with Mozilla's Marshall Irwin. Marshall Irwin is the chief security officer at the Mozilla Corporation, where he leads teams responsible for protecting Mozilla and its users. Uh, he's also been a key driver of major privacy initiatives in the Firefox browser, such as enhanced tracking protection and DNS over HTTPS. Uh, I've been working over at least over a year to try to get one of you guys in. I'm so glad to finally get somebody from Mozilla. Thank you for coming, Marshall. Of course. Thank you for having me. In your longer bio, I couldn't help but notice that your career includes a lot of work in intelligence analysis and counterterrorism. So my first question has got to be, how is it that somebody who worked in counterterrorism ended up at Mozilla? Yeah, so I actually started my career uh, working in intelligence focused on cybersecurity back in 2000, around 2004. And quickly at that time, you know, cybersecurity, then, you know, we appreciated the gravity of some of the challenges that we were going to face, but it was really kind of a backwater of uh, intelligence work. And that was in the midst of the pretty significant efforts to counter and defeat. Al-Qaeda. And mm -hmm. so I shifted my work to contribute to that effort and uh, found it really meaningful. It was a, I, I learned a lot of, about counterterrorism and was able to contribute to a mission that I felt like was really pretty critical. Um, actually, around 2013, when I was working in Congress on both counterterrorism and cybersecurity, and that's when the Snowden disclosures mm -hmm. occurred. And because of my background in both of those areas, I was really effectively able to work with members of Congress to help them understand kind of the scope of what was being disclosed uh, with some of those intelligence programs, like the value, the challenges, mm -hmm. the problems with those programs. And that's really what shifted my career back to focusing on more of these sort of systemic privacy and security challenges that we are all grappling with. I think of that as the first in a series of events that have happened over the last few years that not only have sort of really shaped the work that I do, but shaped a lot of the work that we all do. And uh, so I started working much more heavily on privacy and security at that time. And that work eventually landed at Mozilla, where I, I um, started to work, uh, lead our privacy work, and then um, also uh, started to work with our security teams to make sure that we protected Mozilla's users effectively. Uh, I I traced my interest in privacy back to the exact same uh, events. Mm -hmm. When Snowden came out with those revelations, it was just mind-boggling for me. I was never really yep. a black helicopter type, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, when he really revealed the, the, the scope and the nature of what was going on, it was it still blew my mind. And, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from with that. Mm -hmm. um, so Firefox and Mozilla have a really interesting, interesting history, too, and they really date back to the very beginnings of the World Wide Web. Uh, could you maybe give us a little brief overview of, of where Firefox, uh, how it came to be? Yep. Yeah, so uh, Mozilla really emerged from the embers of Netscape. So uh, Netscape was a dominant browser, but by the late 90s, it had really seen its market share and capacity diminish significantly through a series of what I think in retrospect, we all look back and think of as fairly anti-competitive mm. activity by Microsoft yep. uh, with respect to Internet Explorer. And so by the end of the decade, there was a decision made to actually open source uh, the Netscape code and make it available publicly so that we could create a community of people around the world who could contribute to the effort to build a great browser that would be competitive. And so that was really the first really major and remarkable decision 
that Mitchell Baker, our current CEO at Mozilla, um, really drove and made. And um, I think it's a really remarkable sort of history point in the web, a decision to sort of really drive on, um, open, on an open source browser. So eventually, uh, the Firefox browser um, was built and released just a few years later um, after there had been some some antitrust actions against Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And uh, the browser just took off soon after and became um, really set the standard for some period of time for what a modern, uh, secure, private browser should be. And that was really at a point in time when uh, Internet Explorer, because it had been so dominant, it also had... um, been slow to evolve its, pri- its privacy and security practices and was really viewed as an insecure browser at the time, which helps, helped us really get that foothold and, and expand Firefox. Uh, and we've been releasing versions of Firefox since that time uh, and still feel like it's a pioneering uh, piece of technology that drives change on the web. Well, absolutely. And you guys keep coming up with more and more privacy features, uh, which we're going to get into some of them here in a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, yep. what I don't think a lot of the maybe the audience realizes that uh, they probably realize that Chrome is probably the a dominant browser. It's actually an extremely dominant browser. But what what I don't think a lot of people realize is that the guts of Chrome really are behind <laughs> almost all the browsers left on the, mm-hmm. on the except that's for right. Firefox and maybe Safari. Yeah, that's right. We um, we're still sort of the last independent browser engine. Uh, and we think that's critical to creating diversity in the in the ecosystem, because otherwise web developers are only really going to solve for Chrome. And that's not going to be good good for everybody. anybody. It'll just basically like slow down innovation on the web if Chrome uh, becomes the last real, real browser engine. There. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Mozilla has, I was looking as doing our research for this, Mozilla has both a nonprofit and for-profit wings. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about like how that works, and then maybe kind of you know, how is how are projects like Firefox funded? Yep. So I work for the Mozilla Corporation, which is the the for profit uh, part that you mentioned, um, and we're the folks that actually build, maintain, and release the Firefox browser. Uh, that's sort of we have a number of other products, but Firefox remains the core the core product that we we offer, and the vast majority of the Mozilla Corporation's funding. Uh, is generated through search partnerships that we have. And so when you do a search in the search bar in the Firefox browser, that will go to often one of our search partners and we receive a portion of the revenue uh, generated from that search. Gotcha. Uh, And that's how how we make money. Um, So the unique thing about Mozilla, though, is we also have the Mozilla Foundation, which is the nonprofit parent company of the Mozilla Corporation. And actually, it's the sort of single shareholder of the corporation. Hmm. Um, so there's this rumor that Mark Sermon, who's, who, uh, who runs the foundation, he's got that one share somewhere <laughs> in, a, in a vault somewhere. And I would love to look at it at some point. Um, but the Mozilla, Corpora- the Mozilla Foundation is the part of Mozilla that does sort of broader advocacy work related to a lot of the privacy, um, privacy campaigns, uh, policy initiatives, things like that. I think the important thing for people to to understand about the corporation and the foundation is what this means ultimately is that even though the corporation, we really have to think about our business and the health of our business and making sure that we we maintain revenue. Ultimately, the purpose of that is to advance the Mozilla mission of creating a more secure, more more open web. And it means that we aren't sort of just solely focused on maximizing shareholder revenue we can focus on making decisions that actually build a better internet in the end and serve that longer term mission. And that's the unique element of that, that 
structure allows by, by creating this corporation that builds the browser, but ultimately underneath the foundation focused on the, the Mozilla mission. That's really fascinating. And so you mentioned building a better web. So one of the questions I wanted to ask is, why is it that the World Wide Web just didn't seem to come with built-in privacy features? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it maybe had some security, but it just seems like privacy was a total afterthought. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I think, like, having worked on this for a long time, the, the, the privacy and security problems, the underlying properties of the web, and I think have been apparent for some time for people who have been in this industry. Mm -hmm. The challenge has always been, one, the threat landscape wasn't nearly as mature. And so the diversity of, of players trying to actively taking advantage of putting people's privacy at risk or putting people's security at risk has evolved significantly uh, <laughs> over the last two decades. And so there's a much, the, the, the underlying properties have improved slightly. The threat landscape has gotten much worse. Yeah. So I think that's part of, part of the, the, the factor there. The other is like, there's never been a huge amount of user awareness or demand. Mm -hmm. Now that's changed a little bit more recently, mm -hmm. but I think that's really the most, the most critical driver. And that also means that companies weren't incentivized to really solve and, and build this stuff into the core technology until only recently. And so it's a combination of those factors that I think meant that in the early phases of the development of the web, this just wasn't a priority. There wasn't a, enough of a motivation to really drive uh, and make the web more secure and more private like there is today. So given that, is it is it uh, notwithstanding all the things that, you know, wonderful things that people like Firefox are doing or Mozilla are doing with Firefox to protect our privacy, is it really actually possible to have true privacy on the internet today? And some people, the other question kind of follow up to that is, is that the same thing as being anonymous? And a lot of people, I think, kind of equate those two, but I think there, there's some nuance there. Yeah. So I certainly think it's possible to, to be more private and to have a much more private, secure web. Uh, I, it really depends on what you mean by privacy. You know, mm -hmm. inherently, when you engage online, you're reaching out to a party and, and giving that party your data. Mm -hmm. And... And so there is a basic element of, of engaging on the web that is non-private and probably is going to be non-private non for the vast majority of, of people online. But that doesn't mean that we can't have an internet where when you engage with a party, you know who that party is, you know that they're trustworthy, you know exactly what they're going to do with your data, and nothing is going to surprise you about that. And I think that's the 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 more private, more secure internet that we are working to build. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily an internet where no one learns about you. Because mm -hmm. like I said, any engagement that you have with a third party across across the web, you're going to be disclosing some amount of information to that to that party. But we can have an internet where the the parties you disclose that data to are trustworthy, know what to do with your data, are accountable when they do something malicious with your data. As you've said, there's been actually a lot of uh, kind of focus on privacy. GDPR is maybe one of the bigger, and, and the California uh, CCPA Act um, have been kind of recent things with that. But privacy by design goes back quite a bit, and uh, mm -hmm. I've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Anne Kavukian about that. Uh, but there, it, there's been a lot of frameworks around this and a lot of ideas about what it really means to be private. You even kind of hinted that some of that in the previous answer. But to you, in your mind, as a uh, chief security officer and privacy advocate, mm -hmm. what, what are you are the guiding principles to privacy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mozilla, a number of years ago before GDPR and CCPA and a lot of the more recent regulatory frameworks, we published what we call our data privacy principles, uh, which I think are map really well onto the basic structure and expectations of GDPR. And so 
those principles are one, no surprises. The basic idea <laughs> being that sort of user, users should shouldn't be surprised by ha anything happening in your in your product. Uh, user control, limited data, sensible settings, and defense in depth. Those are the the privacy principles that we have for a long time tried to drive into our product. Um, now, to my mind, the the most critical one on a day to day basis at Mozilla is actually the no surprises principle, um, and that's because you know a lot of users, a browser, or a lot of the technology that that people use today is too sophisticated to for most people to understand in depth. It's too sophisticated for even me to understand what's what's happening in the browser. But if a user learns something about our product, we want to make sure that that doesn't surprise them, mm -hmm. and it's not out of the uh, of the set of expectations that they should have had. And you know, like any company, we make mistakes at times, and often when we look back and we think, like, what was the core mistake here, it will be a, a violation of that no surprises principle. There was something here that users sh didn't expect or shouldn't have expected that that happened. Um, and when we try to hew pretty closely to that principle, I think we, we tend to be pretty successful. And a lot of the problems you see across the industry are really violations of that, that basic idea. Things like tracking, which we can talk a lot, lot more about. Mm. Um, users don't understand that, and when they do come to understand it, they're often surprised by the scope of what's happening there. Um, and that's a really big problem in our view. Yeah, yeah, just it really is. And transparency is just not present. Um, and I, one, of the, one of the news stories I've been following lately is uh, Apple with iOS 14 uh, is coming out and forcing a lot of app developers to be transparent, to disclose when they're using your location or when they're sharing data with third parties. And uh, I just saw Facebook actually came out with a warning to its advertisers saying, you may lose 50% of your revenue because now we have to tell people we're tracking you. And they mm -hmm. may say no, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I'll just say, like, I think that was an, an awesome decision on Apple's part. I really yeah. um, applaud them for that. A lot of our work within the browser uh, focuses on um, addressing browser-based tracking through things like cookies. But for Apple, you know, the core tracking mechanism on a mobile device is an advertising identifier, whether you're on a sort of Apple device or a Google device. And, and so Apple's efforts to really tackle that and make cross-app tracking harder, I think, are, are, are really impressive. And They've given themselves a tough task there, but I, I admire that. And um, like I said, half of the, the work that, that I think to, to solve some, some problems online today with tracking is, is focused on cookies, but the other half really does have to focus on these advertising identifiers, which um, and, uh, and I think that's a really important step forward that they've taken. So we will definitely get into uh, uh, tracking and, and advertising and marketing and stuff, but it, I'd be remiss if uh, with somebody with your background if I didn't ask you at least a little bit about the... The, uh, the the mass surveillance, the warrant, warrantless surveillance from the government, and you know intelligence agencies and law enforcement, including the DOJ and the FBI here in the U.S., uh, but all you know in Australia, UK, and other places as well, uh, have been saying that you know these security and privacy technologies are robbing them of their ability to keep us safe. Uh, they're mm -hmm. so, the so-called going dark problem. Uh, I'm very curious. What what is your take on that? Yeah. So a few things. I think. It's important to step back and realize that, like, we are living at a time of remarkable uh, insecurity, or really cyber insecurity, and 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 that has left us all vulnerable in a number of different ways. The companies that we use, your your data, your products, they are all not as secure as they should be, and encryption is fundamentally the most robust tool that we have to address that problem. And so, when I think about what we need to do both the private sector and government actors, DOJ, FBI, national security agencies, to really 
to build a stronger internet, one that protects mm-hmm. all of us. I think it is really critical for everyone to be all in on encryption. Um, and I think the idea of weakening encryption for the purpose of effectuating particular in, uh, investigations uh, is a bad is a bad idea. Um, now that said, I I don't want to dismiss, and I think sometimes we are too quick to dismiss the concerns of law enforcement agencies like DOJ and FBI, who I think legitimately do run into sure, yeah. problems. And you know they have serious investigations into people who are up to no good. And when they take an iPhone. Uh, and they want to be able to get into that iPhone to gather information to effectuate that investigation, and they're not able to do it, I can appreciate that that's a very frustrating experience for them. But ultimately, I think the the societal benefit to me is right. clearly in favor of of not having things like backdoors or exceptional access, which is what the Department of Justice would, would prefer. Um, just one last thing. I So you mentioned this sort of going dark problem, mm-hmm. and I think it's I like to rephrase this problem a little Please. bit <laughs> into what I call it the going slowly problem <laughs> because uh, right now there is a a huge amount of data available about everybody yeah. <laughs> right and if you uh, again like sitting where I sit there's this flood of data and there and sadly there aren't enough indications that that flood is going to subside and that means in practice that that data is also available to law enforcement if they go through the processes to get it the challenge, I think, is actually not that law enforcement is going dark, but rather it doesn't have simple, scalable solutions for everybody that they can deploy really quickly. Hmm. And so that means that for any particular person, if they take the time to figure out where that data sits and how they can get it through lawful process, they can actually learn more than they could have before because right. there's so much data available about us. But it's not easy. It's not as easy as it was before. And so they're going more slowly because <laughs> yeah. it, it actually takes a much more sort of nose to the grindstone approach to actually get that data that they need. Well, and let's face it, before the internet, that's way, that's way it always was, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's we, right. before we yep. had the internet, this, that's they're going back to what they had to do back then, the old gumshoe mm-hmm. techniques of, you know, tailing somebody, you know, planting a bug or, you know, whatever it is those guys, the spooks do. But, yep. um, okay. So let, let, let's switch board to the corporate stuff. I think that's more applicable here anyway. Um, so while well, a lot of people have mixed views, I think on the whole risk versus reward of warrantless mass surveillance, and I've heard I've heard all sorts of different sides on that, and people coming down different ways on that, and it's it is a tricky, thorny issue. But um, I think a lot of people today, certainly after Cambridge Analytica and some of the other things that have exposed what's really going on, and I still think there's more that people don't understand. But you know, the corporate data mining has really gotten way out of hand. Um, mm-hmm. So. Why is that? What happened? Why did we, I mean, advertising was dumb for centuries. I mean, you know, for, you know, we've been doing demographic based advertising for forever and it worked just fine. What, mm-hmm. why, why did yep. we transition from these dumb ads, demographic based ads to behavioral and targeted ads? Yep. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a few pretty simple uh, reasons why that transition happened and overall pushed the ecosystem in an unhealthy direction that, I mean, as you said, like the, the dumber ads or the less targeted ads <laughs> seem to work for a long time. Right. So, so um, you know, the three reasons I would give you, one, there are just simply no, no meaningful guardrails to prevent <laughs> yes. the collection of, and creation of vast user profiles. And so it is really easy for parties to, to, to create those through various sort of technical mechanisms. Um, second is like if you're an advertiser, you of course are going to want to be able to segment your audience into particular buckets and target them more effectively. It kind of makes sense from a like, yeah, you'd rather have a smarter ad, 
<laughs> and you're going to be willing to pay a premium for a smarter ad, even though in reality, the marginal value of that might not be really that significant. Mm -hmm. But of course, as an advertiser, yes, I, I want to segment my network and target it more effectively. Um, and that then means that because there's going to be more demand from the advertisers, there's going to be ad tech companies that are going to compete to create those more sophisticated uh, targeting mechanisms. And so all of that ends up driving toward driving us to a place that we're in now where you see these really sophisticated behavioral targeting systems, but ultimately within an ecosystem that isn't healthy and doesn't seem to be creating underlying value in the way that we think it should. Well, and that leads right into my next question, which is I, I've heard varying things, and of course, being sort of slanted toward privacy, the people I tend to talk to are <laughs> kind of, you know, are, are certainly probably just biased in the same way I am. But certainly a lot of studies that are say that, you know, that the actual, I mean, the underlying premise of this whole, this whole enterprise is that targeted ads are so much more valuable than non-targeted, than dumb ads. And, and, and therefore these advertising companies, Google and Facebook being probably the largest among them to charge more for these services than they would for mm -hmm. you know just regular old ads. But there have been some studies done on this, I believe it. Do we really know how much more valuable these targeted ads are than just regular old dumb advertising? Yeah. So it really depends on what we mean by value. And when mm -hmm. people talk about this, it's important to try to like, what are they really talking about? So I think it's fairly clear, and we have studied this, and I think other parties have, have studied, that the, the sophisticated behaviorally targeted ads have higher click rates, uh, and higher conversion rates. Hmm. Um, now, I don't think that really is an indication of value, <laughs> but 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 it does mean that users might res might respond to them at higher rates. That also means that advertisers might be willing to pay more for those ads, of course, because they want higher click rates and higher conversion rates. They're willing to pay to get that those higher conversion rates. So, in that respect, there's evidence that they work. Now, I think, to my mind, one of the most critical pieces here is there isn't strong evidence to indicate that that value actually translates to users or publishers. Hmm. And there was a study out of Carnegie Mellon last year that actually found that the behaviorally targeted ads only generated 4% uh, higher returns hmm. than the dumb ads for major publishers, which is pretty remarkable because yeah. I think any of us would say, like, look, if it's only 4%, <laughs> right. given the systemic problems we're running into, this, this just ain't worth it. Right. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. You know, when a publisher has to use these much more sophisticated behavioral targeting systems, they, they have to then integrate third parties and those third parties take a larger cut uh, of the revenue. Mm -hmm. And the publisher is the one that ends up losing, losing out in that equation. And so what we see right now is like, there is some value generation component of how the ecosystem works today, but there's actually a large value extraction component, <laughs> third party ad tech essentially taking what would otherwise be value that would go directly to a publisher to to help produce really quality content and instead is going to third parties uh, in a way that, like I said, is ultimately not serving anyone's purposes because we don't have a healthy publishing uh, industry right now. Huh. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Even with, I think, even with some of the, the scandals and the breaches and some of the news stories that have hit the shelves, I still think that a lot of people aren't really aware of the true, true extent to mm -hmm. the amount of tracking that's going on there, Clue. What, where do you think the average person is on understanding what's really going on today in data mining? You know, I do think like general awareness of the problem has increased uh, because of these these scandals, you know, Snowden, Facebook scandals, as well as things like GDPR and CCPA. Mm -hmm. I think people are vaguely aware of the problem, but we also know that as you navigate the web, 
a lot of the sort of tracking and data collection is so non-transparent mm-hmm. that people have no idea on a day-to-day basis who is collecting data about them and what is being done, done with that data. Um, and that's the underlying problem. And that's also why, ultimately, even though I, I do think people are more aware of this problem right now, it isn't really changing behavior because users don't have adequate control, transparency and, and control uh, that we would like them to have. And so you see, as a result, opt-in to privacy features is still rel- a relatively low for that reason, because people don't fundamentally understand on a day-to-day basis what is happening. So let's get into some of these tech- tracking techniques. And that's one of the reasons we're here is to talk about some of the things that Firefox has been doing to, uh, to, to address these. So at a, at a high level, let's go over, like, what are some of the main techniques today? Like, what are the, what are the common techniques that are used on the web today to uh, track us as we surf the web? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so third-party uh, cookie-based tracking is sort of the core tracking technology that has powered a lot of history of tracking um, over the past few decades. As companies like Mozilla and, and Apple have started to work to address that problem, we see the tracking techniques evolve as well. And so the other types of tracking that we see are some DNS-based tracking, uh, fingerprinting, and then uh, hashing of PII is another critical one that we are thinking really hard about and trying to solve for. Um, because as we make it harder to do third-party cookie-based tracking, see a lot of other companies exploring some of these other techniques like fingerprinting and, and hashing of PII. Yeah, so let, let's get into some of those. So as you say, great, you know, third-party cookies is kind of the granddaddy of, of web tracking. So help us uh, help the audience understand that, you know, of course, we've talked about this before, but it's, it's always good to get different perspectives and certainly somebody mm-hmm. from, uh, from Mozilla. Uh, what is third-party tracking and, and how is that used? Like a, a thumbnail sketch, how is that used to track us around the web? Yep. So the basic idea is you visit a, a website. Imagine it's a major publisher, like, just for example, the New York Times. Um, there will be a, a third party that is embedded on that website And it will do what we call set a cookie, a third-party cookie that has an identifier associated with you. It's a random number, one, two, three, four, five. And then they know that the user associated with one, two, three, four, five visited the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Now you you, uh, visit another website, say it's the Washington Post, and that same third party is embedded on that website. They can then look to see if that cookie has been set, and if it is, they can find that identifier and say, oh, now user 12345 has also visited the Washington Post. And they know, okay, this, this user associated with this random identifier has visited both of these. And so third party, that's essentially what third-party cookie tracking is. Now, if you have these third parties embedded across the web, they can then build a portrait of your browsing activity as you, as you navigate to those sites. So you start from a few sites that you visit, and then when those third-party cookies are accessed from a number of different sites across the web, um, then the, the party essentially has a pretty expansive profile of exactly who you are and what your interests are, and they can then target again. So as you mentioned, both Apple and uh, Mozilla have embedded some really serious privacy protections around cookie tracking uh, in your mm-hmm. respective browsers. So how do you combat that? What, how, does, how do your protections work, and does your approach differ in any way from Apple's? Yeah, so the, the basic problem that we are trying to solve uh, with third-party cookie tracking is, is very, very similar between Mozilla and Apple. Um, we uh, want to block the use of third-party cookies for tracking across sites. Um, the way that we do that is slightly different. Mozilla takes a list-based approach where we have a partner uh, named Disconnect who maintains a list of tracking domains. And 
when you navigate to a particular site, there is a call to one of those tracking domains, and that tracking domain attempts to set a third-party cookie. We prevent the cookie from being set, and that's what prevents the actual tracking across sites. So we use that list provided by Disconnect to do that. Apple uh, is attempting to do something very, very similar, but instead they have take a heuristic approach on, on the client. So rather than having a list provided by uh, a partner like ours, Disconnect, what they do is they have a number of heuristics that over time, as you browse, attempt to identify what third-party trackers are and block those in real time. And the idea is that it would get smarter over time and block more and so that the, the tracking is actually prevented. And so the ultimate end goal is the same and the, mm -hmm. the practical effect of blocking the third-party tracking is, is the same, um, but the way in which the actual underlying technology is slightly different. So this is basically a cat and mouse game, right? It's the marketers mm -hmm. going, you know, working against the privacy advocates. And so, you know, cookies, as you say, have been third party cookies in particular, have been kind of under attack for years. And so they're kind of mm -hmm. moving to other things. And as you mentioned before, so one of the techniques that I, that I think is really, uh, really drives me nuts is uh, mm -hmm. redirect tracking. Yep. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people realize that that's happening. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us how that works. Uh, and what do you do to prevent that? And at that point, we will stop and wait uh, wait for next week to give the answer to that question. And if you recall, we actually talked about redirect tracking uh, in last week's show, I believe, when I was explaining how Google manages to track us without using third-party cookies. I didn't know this until I interviewed him. I thought it was uh, thought it was really interesting that the kind of the Snowden revelations were what really started it for both of us in terms of our attention to and concern for privacy. And I also just think it's really cool that Firefox can trace its roots all the way back to Netscape Navigator, which if you, if you remember the old days of the World Wide Web, that was the browser. I mean, gosh, I was using that back in getting my master's in college. So next week, we're going to finish up that thought. We're going to get into a couple more different ways that we're being tracked and talk about how Firefox at least mitigates uh, those tracking techniques. And I'm going to ask Marshall what his personal tips are for protecting your privacy. If for some reason you have not tried the Firefox browser, now would be a great time to go download that from, Mo from the Mozilla website. And while, you know, Google's Chrome, Google does some great work in, in terms of security, and Safari does too, and so does Firefox. Uh, when it comes to privacy, there's just it's just <laughs> it couldn't be a starker difference between Google Chrome and Firefox. So if you care about your privacy, you really should not be using Google Chrome. Okay, so the book is one week closer to being published. I don't have a firm date yet, but it's going to have to be in the next week or two. So it's going to be coming out very very soon. And um, ramping up, finally decided how I'm going to do my contest. I was thinking I was going to use Goodreads, and uh, I really do like Goodreads, but their giveaway program is not nearly as good, I guess, as it used to be. Uh, I went to do some research on this at Goodreads, and, like, there were a lot of comments, and, like, got to be 95% of them were all negative. So, unfortunately, I will not be doing that. But I have found another interesting place, some place I'd never heard of before. In fact, it came from one of the comments that I was reading on Goodreads. And so uh, I will be doing that. And the kind of the neat thing about that one is you'll have multiple ways to kind of enter. You can enter more than once. I'm planning to give away three, maybe maybe five signed copies of the book, hot off the presses. And uh, you will have multiple ways to kind of earn some points toward uh, winning winning that book. So it should launch next Monday. So be sure to tune in next Monday for part two of my interview with Marshall Irwin, as well as details on how to enter the book giveaway. 
I considered doing something in parallel on Patreon, but I think that's all too much. And I think so. I think I'm going to save that. And uh, next month happens to be National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Uh, so <laughs> that seems like as good an excuse as any uh, to, to do something there. So uh, when this is all over, we'll, we'll look at that one next. So that'll do it today, folks. I hope you're all staying safe out there. Stay home. Wear those masks when you go out. I hope everybody is somehow managing to stay healthy. And we will get through this eventually. But until then, be safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.